It's Tuesday, June 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Supernova, David Kretzman. Thanks for being here. Good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. We're doing a Facebook Live today, too, which is not really helping the people who are listening to the podcast. But just know that every once in a while, we do Facebook Live. So, so if you're on the Facebook, you want to join the Motley Fool podcast group, we'll give you the heads up when we do these things. It pays to be part of it. Uh, well, it doesn't actually pay. Not no. Not in actual money. Not actual. Well, maybe if we have a good stock tip that you get early because you're on Facebook Live, perhaps that that, that could work out. Uh, we're going to talk esports. We're going to talk earnings. We have to start with Apple because the big worldwide developer conference was yesterday, and the headline, and it seems like this is the case every year with Apple when they have the worldwide developer conference. They announce a bunch of things, but almost every year they do this. There is one thing that is grabbing all the headlines, and this year it's the HomePod, which is, on the surface, this appears to be Apple's answer to the Google Home Assistant and the Amazon Echo. Um, but it certainly is priced at a premium. Yeah, three hundred forty-nine dollars. Yes. And yeah, when they were framing it, they they basically said, yeah, if you have a smart speaker, you know, a Bluetooth or Wi-Fi connected speaker, and just a great quality sound speaker, uh, that that would range between four and seven hundred dollars. But guess what? Our uh, HomePod <laughs> is only three hundred forty nine dollars. And I was just thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure you can buy the Google Home or Amazon Echo for quite a bit less than that, well under two hundred dollars, and uh, depending what version uh, of, of those products, under a hundred dollars even. But they're really framing this to be an advanced speaker, so focusing on the quality of the sound probably more than anything else. That's front and center. So they're actually competing more directly against Bose and Sonos, which have smart speakers or wireless speakers that can go for over $500. So when you take that into account and uh, recognize that the focus is on the sound quality, not so much the, the smart speaker aspect or that personal assistant aspect, then it makes a little more sense. And Tim Cook and, and others, as they were unveiling this product and, and talking about it in subsequent interviews yesterday and today, they were saying that people are probably just going to be blown away by the quality of the sound of this device. So it really ties into Apple Music, that subscription offering. And, and it, I, I think they see the personal assistant aspect, like having Siri on that device. That's the cherry on top, but that's not the reason that you would get this speaker. It's interesting because as you laid out, Amazon and Google are aiming more with their devices. They're trying to be more of your personal assistant, whereas with this device, Apple appears to be looking to be your personal DJ. And yet, even though this is one more move that they are making towards entertainment, specifically music, but if you think about Apple TV, they are moving more towards entertainment and, in particular, home entertainment. I question the use of that last slide that they had up there, which was sort of the, oh, by the way, it also does this other stuff. And so, I'm wondering, there's no way to know this, but I'm wondering, would the reception for this be different if it was all about the music, if it was all about the home entertainment experience? Because the fact that they had that final slide up there that said, oh, by the way, the HomePod is also going to be able to Give you podcasts, which of course makes sense because that's part of the ecosystem on on iTunes and you know Apple Music that sort of thing. But then they appear to go even further down that road with news and skills and weather and you know all that sort of thing. So I, I, they they kind of they kind of seem like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, I, I think 
it, it would make a little more sense to me anyway if, if they really did just focus on the music aspect because that is the main selling point that they're saying themselves for the device. And I don't know how many people, not many people, I don't think, will spend that amount of money just to have Siri. Uh, because there have been a lot of tests, and, and Siri usually doesn't perform as well as a personal assistant compared to Alexa or Google Assistant. Uh, so, so the music angle, to me, makes a lot more sense. And I, I would imagine in the marketing, that'll be what Apple focuses on once this product is uh, ready to you know, go on store shelves in uh, December. They, they basically recognize that right now there isn't a speaker that's wireless and smart and sounds really good. Usually you can have one or two of those, right. and not all three. So they're, they're trying to get all three. But I think if there's one weak aspect here, it would be that smart angle. Because like I said, Siri hasn't necessarily performed as well as the other assistants. And it's not immediately clear to me if the Siri on the HomePod will be able to do everything that Siri on the iPhone will be able to do. So I think that's the, the angle to watch. Tim, Tim Cook, in an interview, mentioned that I think more stuff will be coming down down the pike. So right now, Siri on the HomePod might be a little bit more limited, but I would imagine they'll they'll try to open that up uh, in the months months ahead. It's interesting because, as you mentioned right off the top, three hundred forty nine dollars. I mean, say what you want about Apple, but you can never accuse them of going down market. They, they they're like, "No, this is a premium device and you're going to pay a lot more than you than you would pay for an Amazon Echo or a Google Home Assistant." Um, at at some point do we, you and I talked a little bit about this this morning, right out of the gate, I don't think any of us expect them to break out sales numbers. Mm-hmm. Unless of course, they're amazing. If they sell as many of these as the iPhone, they'll probably break that out, and it'll probably become uh, pretty clear uh, just uh, with incredible numbers. But yeah, I wouldn't expect them to break out the the unit sales. They might lump it into that kind of uh, connected devices category, with, which has Beats, AirPods, uh, the Apple Watch. I would assume they lump it in there. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what what that looks like. We won't really have any numbers for that uh, for the next couple quarters. Uh, it'll start selling in December, so we still have a ways to go. And I imagine they'll con- continue to do some development work on it, probably especially with that smart, you know, the the Siri assistant aspect. So a lot of stuff to watch here. But it, I, again, for me, the the key focus here is that they're they're focused on uh, the sound performance of this speaker. And when you look at it from that angle, like it has a lot of the same hardware, the same chip. Uh, you know, proprietary chip that the iPhone has. So the the hardware within this speaker is pretty impressive, and I think uh, based on how they're hyping this up, and I, I don't think they're they're overhyping it. I, I would imagine that it does sound pretty good. So I think this will be a good seller for them. It, it fits right into that iPhone ecosystem, which is so dominant. You have uh, very few people leaving the iPhone ecosystem compared to virtually any other smartphone maker, for sure. Uh, and this fits into the services side of the business, just reinforcing why it it makes sense as a user to have Apple Music, which has tens of millions of subscribers, only behind Spotify. So uh, to me, this this really does make sense from that when you look at it from that ecosystem perspective, which I think is really the best way to look at Apple as a business right now. Well, and I think one more thing that we can all look for is what does Apple do for this device in terms of promotion? I. I I knew that Amazon and, or I should say, one indicator to me of how serious Amazon and Google were about their home assistance was when they started putting television advertising dollars behind it. And the HomePod seems like something that is maybe an early candidate for the 
must-have gadget of the holidays in 2017. And if three, five months from now, we start seeing a serious marketing push around this, that, that as much as anything, is going to be an indication from Apple that these things are selling, and they want to sell even more. Yeah, what will be interesting to, to watch, and I don't know if there's been any uh, research around this, but I don't know how much overlap there is right now between iPhone users and people who also own a Google Home or Echo device. But I would imagine if you're an iPhone user and you already have a smart speaker, I think you would still be pretty intrigued to switch over to uh, the, the HomePod. But uh, if you don't have an iPhone, then obviously it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You'll probably just stick with the, the Echo or... Google Home or not have a speaker at all in my case. But that, that iPhone ecosystem is so strong and so compelling that I, I, I think Apple clearly has an advantage there. And that, that's why I think this, this will do pretty well. Let's move on to some earnings from Casey's General Stores. Fourth quarter profits were light. They lowered guidance for the full fiscal year. And this kind of wraps a bow on a not great year for Casey's. This wasn't a terrible year, but it wasn't great. Yeah, they're facing pretty much the same headwinds that most restaurants in the U.S. are facing right now. Casey's is primarily in the U.S. The majority of their stores are in towns with under 5,000 people, so they're focused on a pretty niche demographic as far as towns go. Most, but mostly in the Midwest. Mostly in the Midwest. They're slowly but surely expanding kind of into the Southeast Territory. They opened up their second distribution center in Indiana last year, and they just opened up their first store in Ohio this past quarter. So right now they're in uh, 15 states. They have just under 2,000 stores. They'll cross that 2,000 mark probably sometime in the next couple quarters. But uh, they, they break out their sales within a couple different categories. You have fuel, so essentially gasoline, gallons. Then you have grocery and other merchandise. And then you have prepared food and fountain comps, so those soda sales and pizza sales, sub sales. Uh, grocery and other merchandise uh, for this past year, their same store sales in that category. Grocery and other merchandise was only up one and a half percent for prepared food and fountain. It was only up three percent. But when you consider that restaurant traffic and sales have been falling pretty consistently the past year or two, those are actually pretty good numbers. So I look at it in that context. It's still well below what management was guiding for. But for this upcoming fiscal year, they're guiding for that grocery and other merchandise category to go up two to four percent as far as same store sales go, and prepared food and fountain comps to go up five to seven percent. And those are numbers that a lot of restaurants would love to have right now in this environment. So the numbers that Casey's is putting up, it's a little bit, to me, more comparable to what a strong casual diner like uh, Texas Roadhouse is doing. Uh, not quite in the Domino's pizza <laughs> category, but Casey's, even though they are in these smaller towns with these small stores, uh, they are doing a lot as far as pizza delivery, uh, delivering subs. They have a mobile app. They're uh, putting a lot into online ordering, and those are helping, I think, maintain relatively healthy comps compared to what a lot of other restaurants are, are putting up now. So, I, I I know we've talked about Casey's on on the pack podcast before, but Casey's is actually the the fifth largest pizza company in in the U.S. So uh, they're they're right up there, and that prepared food segment for them that that is by far the most profitable segment for the company. So it's nice to see those same store sales continue to be uh, the strongest of the bunch of of all those different categories of fuel, grocery, uh, and then uh, prepared food. So. Yeah, you don't like to see these weak results, but considering the the weak environment for restaurants in general, I think these are still okay numbers. In terms of their expansion, are 
I have no, uh, only because I haven't looked, uh, so I'm assuming you have. H- how have they done over the, like, the last five years in terms of their growth? Are they, um, are they taking their time? Have they gone through periods where they expanded pretty quickly? I mean, it really, it really does seem like this is a concept that resonates really well with uh, a lot of communities across the Midwest. And when you talk about sort of their target demo in, in terms of locations, you know what? In the eastern part of this country and in the western part of this country, there are a lot of small communities that meet that profile. So it, this really does seem like a concept that has tremendous expansion. But of course, I think with any restaurant concept or retail concept, and this appears to be a bit of both, you, you don't want to expand too quickly. Yeah, for the most part, they take their time uh, with store expansion. Uh, they're, they're guiding for between about 100, 120 new store openings over the next year. Uh, obviously, the, the timing of opening new stores can be uh, you know, a little lumpy quarter to quarter or year to year. But the way I look at it is they, they, they can expand at a pace pretty comfortably right now of opening 100 or more stores each year. They're also doing a lot of store remodels and just kind of updating the, the concept that way. But yeah, they, they, I don't think they have a, a location yet in Kentucky or Tennessee, even like all the way down to Arkansas. There are plenty of small communities there where Casey's could probably just apply this same concept. And now that they have that second distribution center in Indiana, uh, the company was founded in Iowa, so they've kind of been moving east uh, across the Midwest. Uh, that that second distribution center should really help them uh, as they expand. And, and the fact that they opened up that distribution center last year shows that they definitely have an eye on expanding into some of those new states. But applying that same strategy of uh, going into smaller towns where you're generally not going to have a whole lot of restaurants or grocers or other gas stations to compete with, and just uh, being kind of the everything store for that small community. And that, that's been a concept that's that's worked pretty well for them. Yeah, they're definitely expanding more to the east than they are to the west. But I mean, you you mentioned states like Kentucky and Arkansas. What about Virginia? Bring I want them out here. I want my Casey's. Hey, I, I've, I've I'm hearing too much about how good the pizza is, so I gotta I gotta find my way to, I don't know, I guess Western Ohio, so I can get because the closest Casey's right now is about 400 miles from where we're sitting. I hear it's beautiful this time of year. <laughs> um, I talked with uh, Jason and Taylor yesterday about Fool Fest. And you were involved uh, very heavily in terms of the programming that we did. And I'm curious if you could share just a little bit of sort of your experience at Full Fest because you were doing stuff on the main stage and you were also, you had, you were part of a very popular breakout session that we had on eSports. Yeah, it, it was, Full Fest is always a lot of fun being able to interact with members for a couple of days, just intensive, hands on. You know, talking about stocks and industries and what we're watching as investors. So it's always a blast. And I hope anyone who wasn't able to make it this year can make any of our future events because they're always a lot of fun. And uh, I think all of us learn a lot. But yeah, the, the esports presentation was interesting. This is an emerging category that's growing really quickly. And as investors, it's not something you can ignore. But for people who aren't millennials, and even millennials like me, it can be really hard to wrap your mind around the concept of watching other people play video games and not being paid to do it, (laughs) actually enjoying it. But uh, right now, uh, there there are over 160 million monthly viewers of esports. 80% of the people who watch esports are under the age of 35. So it's, it's really a millennial activity for the most part. That's that's a goldmine for advertisers and companies that are looking for ways to reach that that younger demographic, 
And among millennials, uh, 27% of millennials strongly prefer esports over traditional sports. Uh, so really, it's the same breakdown of millennials who prefer esports versus traditional sports. So for for younger people, esports are really in the same category as uh, traditional sports. So. Uh, like I said, for me, it's still a, f- a foreign concept to me. I don't know if I'll necessarily be sitting down and watching a live stream of, you know, a League of Legends championship game or something. But this isn't a category uh, you can ignore. And uh, when you're talking about engaging activities uh, and compelling content, these video game companies in general have been doing so well with this transition to digital and online gaming. But esports really uh, plays into that as well. Well, and you you talk about engagement. I think Matt Argusinger had tweeted out something the other day about just how engaging video games and esports are. And there was some stat about, or maybe it was just a survey about people who are engaged in this and how it's the one time a day where they put their smartphone away. They basically turn off their smartphone because they don't want any distractions. And in terms of having a captive audience and not just for the programmers but for the potential advertisers then yeah that's that's absolutely something that's of interest yeah and matt made this point on on twitter and i agree with him that like there is a case to be made that these video game companies are the most important or most dominant social networks uh, of of today there's they're they're kind of more in, in the background but when you look at the, the average time spent per day on these different activities like mobile gaming or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, uh, the only thing that gets more engagement than Facebook, which has about 50 minutes per day of user attention, uh, is, is playing console video games, which is at 51 minutes. So the, these video game uh, companies, they, they're just benefiting from this uh, transition to digital. Uh, you, you have these dominant franchises that have a very long shelf life now. Like you'll have games that were released in 2013 or 2014, and three or four years later, they're still very popular, and players are as engaged as ever with those games. And they continue to spend money within the games with these microtransactions within the game or these in-game purchases. And then you add esports on top of that, and you can watch the elite players of your favorite games duke it out against each other. And you can even pay to go to these uh, tournaments within a stadium, within Staples Center, and, and watch you know a, a huge world championship of uh, any given video game. So a lot of different things happening in this category. And it, it was interesting, because uh, talking with a lot of members uh, at the event, and then also just some fellow Fool employees who knew that we were giving this presentation, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, my my son or my my grand my, my grandkid nephew. yeah uh, that people people know uh, yeah their kids or some some relatives generally uh, on the younger side of uh, of the equation as far as age goes who love esports and they look up to their uh, esports competitors kind of the same way that you might look up to Michael Jordan or LeBron James like you you have these idols within esports so. Uh, like I said, I, I just don't see this as a category that you can ignore. And I think these video game companies, they have a lot going for them right now. Uh, and right in today's age, it's hard to capture and maintain people's attention spans. But the video game companies have really cracked that code uh, around the world. And uh, the, you're, you're seeing some incredible results um, because of it. Well, and some pretty incredible returns in terms of the stocks. Uh, Electronic Arts up more than 40% year to date. Uh, Activision Blizzard up more than 60% year to date. So it is, it is definitely making the the translation to, 
the investing world as well. Yeah, absolutely. They they've been among the top performers year to date, and uh, yeah, over past three, five, ten years, they've been incredible performers as well. And I, I don't think that'll stop because especially with that transition to digital, these really are becoming global games. So it's not contained to just uh, one market. And you're having people around the world compete against each other and continue to spend money within these games uh, for uh, a period of, of months or years. So a lot to like with those companies. I think it's a category to watch really closely. Uh, two podcasting notes before we wrap up. Uh, first, uh, David and Dylan Lewis did a very focused episode, no pun intended, on industry focus. This is a couple of weeks ago uh, on the video game industry. So if you've if you've not checked out industry focus, my goodness, I mean this is a perfect perfect opportunity to do that. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, so check that out. Um, and secondly, uh, I, I don't know, every six months or so. Uh, I make the plea. If you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be great. Sure. Uh, as I always say, if uh, if if you like the show, please tell others. If there's something we can be doing better, uh, tell us. Drop us an email to marketfoolery at fool dot com. But but if you could leave us a nice review, that's always appreciated. David Kretzman, you got a busy day. You're you're spending more time in the studio today than I am. So. A lot more time in the studio, and that's probably a rare occasion where I'm in here more than you. So looking forward to it, though. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 